Hello, everyone. This is Fire Chief Paul Dow with Albuquerque Fire Rescue. Now, this podcast is designed to bring you helpful training and best practices and some additional resources that you can access from anywhere. So thank you for joining us and enjoy today's episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the AFR podcast. Today, I am joined by Captain Kevin Ferrando. Welcome, Kevin. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks, Andrew, for having me. Awesome. So uh, you've been a 7-8 now for a couple of years. How have you been liking it so far? Oh, it's a great spot. Yeah, I've uh, it'll be official two years next March, so not quite two years oh, okay. yet. But uh, upgraded in the spot quite a bit before that, so uh, still a lot to learn. It's amazing how much stuff that we do have and uh, t- to do, and constantly just moving. Yeah. All right. So, what do you think uh, the department sees as the the role of seven eight, or how do you see your role as like your primary responsibilities? Well, you know, our title is QAQI, and uh, biggest component though is not necessarily all that. It's EMS supervisor. I think is a huge role we play. Clearly, we got all the critical calls, uh, all the rests, uh, all your major car accidents, shootings, and so I think our position is just kind of an oversight sometimes. Not necessarily taking over any kind of scene control, but we're just there for another resource. Nice. So maybe on a bigger incident, now you guys can actually become a piece to uh, you know manage that incident but if it's a smaller say just like a nine echo you guys aren't showing up necessarily for patient care uh correct uh the the few mcis i've had we kind of function either as command or we transfer that command to a higher rank when they get there and then we'll kind of segue into a transport triage officer and so most of uh, our concern is getting those patients off scene getting them to the appropriate facility, you know, the reds to UNM, the, you know, as it goes yellow, red, green, kind of see that they get to the facilities that are more capable to handle that. And as far as the nine echoes and say, you know, the more calls that we run a lot more in the city, yeah, I show up and then it's kind of just let the crews, the lieutenants or whoever's on scene, just run their call and I'm just there for, for a little extra help and if I see something then I'll say something. But. Okay. Yeah, what, what do you see your role as uh, improving that quality improvement? So if you go to a 9 Echo and you see room for improvement, how do you deal with that? Well, we debrief. Uh, all the 7 eights do it. I think either it's right after the call happens or we'll do it at the hospital. It's kind of all situation dependent. So there's always going to be learning, ask questions. Hey, what went well on this call? And it's just getting that feedback from crews. Uh, if you see something that, hey, we could have done this a little bit better, or hey, I saw that you drew this up, we could have done that a little quicker. You know, usually it's it, most of the time these these calls run pretty smoothly, but sometimes you'll see somewhere they go a little chaotic, and it's it's for the most part I feel that the rescue lieutenants do a great job, the engine lieutenants do a great job, uh, everybody involved is very coordinated, and you know there's not a lot for me who shows up five, 10 minutes later after the dispatch to these calls that I'm gonna impart. It's not for me to show up and just take it away from that lieutenant and say, hey, you know, I'm here now. You, you can just just sit back. It's the exact opposite. I'm, you know, I say I'm here, what can I help you with? What can we do? Nice. And uh, take us behind the scenes of like your meetings when you guys all get together and, and talk about the... I can't talk about what's behind the curtain. <laughs> no, uh, you know, it's, I think it's just a matter of it's all about improving the department and improving what we do in medicine. It's, you know, we have our, our QA monthly meetings. We have the medical control board meetings. And, you know, there's a lot of email that goes before, back and forth between our doctor, uh, our medical director, Dr. Pruitt, and 
EMS commander Chris Ortiz and you know DC Jaramillo and so there's going to be it's just a lot of what is happening in the streets and how is it affecting the rest of the department what's coming what's new to the department what's new in medicine and it's kind of coordinating and shifting through all that uh, that information and figuring out how to get it out to the crews whether it's improving the SOGs or whether it's just you know kind of keeping up on what's happening yeah, so okay. there's a lot of information um, and you know the meetings they uh, that's really what they cover I think the, the most part of it is what we can do to be better and do you guys drive training or are you able to impact that at all we do I think it's it's we try to be as proactive as possible but a little bit of it's reactive too just in the nature of our position in that you know the SOGs are established or the guidelines are established and then if there's a deficiency that occurs at that point you know that's it either creates a QA that opportunity to do that QI part of it that improvement part of it and then now that's where the training component starts fitting into that whether it's it's the 7 8 it's himself or herself does that training with that person or that crew if it's bigger then sometimes we can try to push that to training the training the staff at the training at the fire academy to actually input that into the EMS refreshers where if it's a big big thing like that um, like a trend if you guys notice a trend not just sure a couple people doing something it's like maybe that entire department has the wrong idea of what they're supposed to be doing right well like our new um, CPAPs that came out that was you know we kind of trialed them and then you know now the Academy has the the mobile training unit which goes out and they got everybody up to speed on uh, just the new CPAP with the inline nebs and so it's I not necessarily didn't start with the 7-8 spot but I think it was one of those coordinated efforts where we got the, the, the CPAP to trial it, we gave it to a few crews, we get their feedback, training academy gets it, and then they pass it to the rest of the department. And I notice uh, all the seven eights, they seem a lot busier now than maybe they were 10 years ago around. When I came in in 2010, it seemed like they had a little bit more downtime. So what have you guys been, been doing to uh, get yourself so busy? Uh, I agree with that too. I came in uh, uh, 2005 and I saw a more laid back approach to the 7-8 position. Um, I, I, would, I don't know exactly when the transition happened. I think it might have happened with uh, you know now retired Commander Soto. Uh, it seems like when he took over that spot and the cadre that was there at the time, they became much more proactive, much more involved, took a leadership role as far as EMS in the field. Um, maybe it was just more of an ownership role or they really wanted to, to do better I mean as a, as a whole doesn't want it sounds kind of corny but I think that that was the intent uh, they get a lot of training they at the, the time it started to transition they were doing the seven eights were doing a lot of the ACLS refreshers the PALS refreshers uh, kind of changed away from that but I think as far as the more of getting and improving the guidelines and improving the crews and improving how patient care is done improving medicine it really has taken on more of a, a just that proactive role as opposed to kind of a reactive role so very involved in everything uh, very involved in you know the SOGs it's a uh, it's, it's pretty busy position awesome all right well thanks for the the update on just I've, I've always had a couple of those questions about the seven eight position exactly of like how do you guys see your role versus what maybe when you first come in what what do you expect that role to be um, right we're going to get into our topic of the day though so we're going to be talking about chest trauma today and we had a previous podcast 
talking all about bleeding control. So in that podcast, Dr. Pruitt mentioned there's five places to bleed to death. Um, today we're talking about the chest, which is the biggest cavity. And to refresh you on the other four areas, the abdomen, pelvis, femur, or out into the street. So those are all the areas that uh, you, it is possible for you to bleed to death from. Um, so moving into chest trauma, the way we think about chest trauma, we can break it down into uh, penetrating or blunt trauma. So just the most basic question, like what's the difference between penetrating and blunt trauma? Well, that's just the self-explanatory. Uh, penetrating anytime an object uh, goes into the box or the upper cavity and goes into whatever vital organ that, uh, that it may hit. Blunt trauma is that force we associate more with car wrecks where our body is doing that impact where it's a flat hit and uh, you know can still cause a tremendous amount of injury internally and it's a lot harder to see all right let's start out with uh penetrating trauma so what are the most common probably penetrating traumas that we're going to see in our department uh, gunshot wounds in albuquerque are probably the most predominant uh clearly stabbings and then just those weird freak you know someone's impaled on something but uh, I would say the most that we see is probably the, the GSW. All right, so we're talking about guns. Um, anybody who's had any kind of training with guns, one of the first things you learn is uh, aim for the chest. First of all, it's gonna be a, a bigger target for you to hit, and then also everybody knows that it's gonna cause a ton of damage. So uh, that's what the military you know, taught me when I was in two to the chest. And why are they teaching that? Why is that such a damaging uh, area to it's, shoot at. it's just a lot of vital organs so you know for military for yourself and law enforcement it's neutralizing the threat and that's the quickest way to do it heart lungs and as soon as those are impacted by a, by something coming from the outside there's a lot of things that can be uh, damaged and result in you bleeding to death very quickly uh, bullets themselves will fragment you know hollow point bullets will tear apart and as they're tearing apart they are damaging a lot of organs in the body uh, in addition to the, f the damage that the bullet itself is causing, the force that's created by the bullet, just the speed of it, it's causing this like cavitation effect where everything's getting pushed out and then sucked back in as that bullet's entering and exiting whatever it's going into. Uh, that in itself will cause damage to the body, the organs, and you know, risk of bleeding out increases dramatically. Cool. And uh, a reminder for everybody from paramedic school or basics, if you haven't don't remember this from your basic class, just the speed of the bullet. So um, different kind of weapon, like a rifle is gonna cause more damage than a, than a lower velocity weapon. And that goes all the way down to like a knife is gonna be um, less damaging than, than a bullet. Speed so kills. yeah, for sure. Same thing with blunt, but we'll get to that later. All right, so now we got this GSW or a puncture wound from a knife, whatever it is, we've got this injury to the chest, how are we going to treat this out there in the field? Well, initially you're going to make sure that, you know, the scene is, uh, is accessible and that's where we, we, once we get into that patient, we expose them trauma naked, and then you kind of look for whatever, obviously life threat you can treat right now. So if it's a hole into the chest, we're going to patch that hole. We're going to get that person, you know, as quickly as we can to the hospital because what they need is a trauma surgeon. We know what the injury is. It was an outside insult to the body, and all we can do is maintain whatever vitals we have. Hopefully, improve them with any kind of fluid recess or fluid replacement, and then you know, ER, OR. Okay. And when you say plug that hole, what are we what are we doing for that? Well, for us, we uh, will usually use a venaguard 
or a gloved hand and we're covering that hole trying to prevent that sucking chest wound so we don't want that that person to have any more damage than they already have by us introducing outside air we run the risk of having that lung collapse you know they're probably already borderline or going down the simple pneumo simple that simple pneumothorax um it's that when they progress to that tension pneumo is when it starts getting life-threatening okay we'll get into that in uh, just a second some other things is you know we get taught to do the uh three-sided tape or you know i've seen like tape a credit card or something over that wound but <clears throat> in reality like if that person is bleeding or shocky so they're going to be like clammy and stuff like that that the tape is not going to be that great so yeah maybe a vena guard might work i've also used a uh expired defib pad if you're able to get your hands on that and you can cut that up into a couple different sizes but that's pretty quick and easy to be able to slap on it um, the cops you might show up to a scene and the cops have already slapped the chest seal on there there's there's uh, pre-made chest seals that are just going to be really sticky and and cover that those patients sometimes are either pretty sweaty or pretty bloody. And so, yeah, it, if it's, if it's a, a messy situation, those seals sometimes don't stick very well. So constant reevaluation of that. And one thing to remember, too, is, you know, as soon as you see, see that gunshot wound, uh, you see an en entrance wound, you're going to want to find that exit wound. So, again, don't forget to roll that patient over and look for the exit wound. And that's the, you know, we talked about trauma naked a little bit. But that's really important, and uh, it, it really does mean trauma naked. I've missed uh, e I've missed entrance wounds, accident wounds before, where you know the patient's bloody, or maybe you didn't remove their undergarments, and you know you get to the ED, they cut it off, and there's another exit wound. Right. And so, not that that's the end all be all, but you want to be as thorough as possible because you want to address those life threats. Yeah, don't be shy. Uh everything off move things out of the way if you need to get a better look if you need to lift up the armpit and look in there i mean just you're checking everywhere now what if somebody got shot say there's a uh, maniac running around with a crossbow or a bow and arrow or something just just sh shooting people like crazy and they and you show up and they've they've actually still got the arrow in them what are you can do for that well patient? the first thing is let's let's not remove that object you know anytime a person has been impaled whether it's a knife or a crossbow arrow or a piece of rebar whatever it is uh, large bulky dressing around that object if it's through and through then pad both sides of it we don't want it to get dislodged because there's a good chance that if, if that person's stable on scene with that impaled object that arrow or object could be holding uh, itself against a, a artery that hasn't it may be nicked it's just not bleeding out because that object is holding the pressure itself so that's going to be something that the OR would probably end up removing and then that way they can repair that damaged uh, damaged artery or whatever it is yeah and i can imagine a, a scene you might show up to where that object is just so awkward and in the way that maybe it's possible for you to like say it's like a 10 foot long stick or whatever like maybe you're able to get that a little bit smaller like you're, we're not removing it or anything but maybe the, the, just the uh, facts of the situation are like that object has to be smaller for you to move that patient around. We have the benefit here in, in Albuquerque having squad two, a lot of specialized equipment. And so if it, even if it was a giant piece of steel where something that a crew wouldn't be able to get removed if machinery injury, they can uh, hopefully either use a torch or, you know, I don't know if that's even possible, cut it. You know, obviously there's going to be heat associated with that. But if this person has a giant piece of machinery that's impaled in them uh you know we'll have to get some specialized equipment to get it removed and then transporting could still be an issue you're going to have to transport maybe in a precarious position where if it's 
if it's four or five feet long and you can't get this whatever it is uh, smaller, then you'll have to just you know improvise a little bit. All right. So these are the different kinds of uh, you know penetrating trauma injuries that can create a sucking chest wound. Say what what's a sucking chest wound and how's that going to progress into a life-threatening situation? Like we kind of talked earlier, it's when you're introducing that outside air into the chest cavity and it's causing a pressure differential between the outside air and the inside air in your body. So that lung is going to start getting pushed down. And when that lung collapses, obviously you're going to have difficulty breathing. Our vital signs are probably going to start to tank. You're going to become hypotensive. You're going to become tachycardic. Uh, these patients are, you know, they're, they're coming to a point where it's going to become very serious. And so the, those sucking chest wounds need to be either you know, plugged or will even get more invasive as it progresses to the tension pneuma with needle decompression. Okay, so how are we gonna, what's the line for us? If we've got a, you know, say a simple pneumo, just because you have a uh, GSW of the chest, you don't have a tension pneumo, what's the line? Where, where is that, where we actually need to decompress that chest? It's really going to be based on, I think, the vitals. Um, you know, once they once that person becomes unstably hypotensive, and they're you know they're clearly going to have decreased mentation. That's when you're going to have to take that extra step because this person's near dying, and when that that simple pneumo turned into that tension pneumo, all sorts of things in the body are starting to get compressed. That lung that's collapsed and it's pushing over will start pushing on that heart. And when that heart starts getting pushed on, then it, it has a, it's, it's under a lot more load than it normally is. It already has an insult to the body. And so you're probably, it's probably beating faster to keep that blood flow. Once it that has that pressure on the heart itself, uh, it's, it's working even more, uh, it's even working double time at that point to really get the blood through the body. And so you'll start having those um, late signs. Yeah, so when it, uh when it's compressing on the heart, that's gonna just, you got the increased pressure in the thorax, that's gonna reduce your preload, so you're gonna have less uh, blood in those ventricles actually to pump out. Um, that's where you might see a sign like JVD, although you mentioned before, you know, that's gonna be a late sign. Also, they- Trachea deviation. Yeah, those are all very late signs, and that person is gonna be extreme, that's an extremely sick patient. Right, but tachycardia, say tachypnea, hypoxia, um, cool clammy skin from the hypoperfusion, uh, absent lung sounds. Oh, right, we didn't address that. They're usually gonna have that side, that deficit where it's been impaled or it has that uh, sucking wound. You're gonna, since that lung has already been compromised and it's, it's collapsed, uh, yeah, you're not gonna have lung sounds on that side. So that's gonna be a, one big indicator that this person has a pneumothorax. Now, if it's a simple or is it progressed to a tension pneuma. All right. so. Hopefully you guys, that'll clear it up. We wanna do needle decompression on a tension pneumo, not a simple pneumo. So again, we're not just randomly decompressing everybody out there because uh, you wanna try to get one of those under your belt. Well, I think what happens is we have that, uh, this person was either hit by a car, so it's a blunt force, or this person was stabbed or shot, and then you, you know, and they might even still at this point be vitally stable. If they're talking, you know, they're, they're tracking, they're not, they don't hit the criteria for that tension pneumo yet, that person doesn't necessarily need a needle decompression right now. I'm not saying not to do it because it's, a, it's an intervention that can save lives. We just wanna make sure we're not arbitrarily doing needle yeah. decompression. And that needs to be high, like at the top of your list of what you're looking for, you know, as that call goes on. You've got massive trauma, like you should be, you should be ready like at any second for that. It yeah. should be high on your list, any kind of car wreck. Um, 
But yeah, you got to make sure it fits the criteria that we're looking for before you're going to go ahead with that procedure. Uh, but transitioning to that, if we are going to go through with the needle decompression, what do you think uh, the most common site is right now? I think everybody goes uh, midclavicular, uh, just two down, two ribs intercostal, skiving the second rib if you want to get technical, yeah, going right. to that third spot, and uh, that's where. I feel that that's the most comfortable spot for everyone. Most providers seem like that's where they go. Yeah, it's it's right. You know, the patient's laying supine, and they you know just presenting, and it's easy spot to, to access. Yeah, so that spot's going to be the second or third ICS. It's going to be mid clavicular, like you said. I forgot the term you used, but you're going to skiving the second intercostal. Skiving. Oh, there you yeah, go. That's that's a good. Over it, yeah, that's a good question. So yeah, you want to walk over that rib because remember, if you go under the rib, that's where the blood vessels are and the nerves and stuff like that. So we want to avoid that. Um, however, there's been some research out there, everybody. So you know. Kevin and I have these massive uh, pectoral muscles, and uh, sometimes if, if that's a situation that you're, uh, that you're given, <laughs> that uh, needle decompression is not gonna work on us. You know, there's just too much mass. It, it doesn't way. take a whole lot of mass. Uh, you'd be amazed at the, the average, average uh, size person, um, how many needle, I don't have the, the numbers, but I was reading one study that showed how many failed um, needle decompressions occur mid-axillary under that, you know that second to third uh, intercostal just because you know some males have a thicker upper body and it just doesn't penetrate all the way into that lung to get that decompression that we want yeah so if you're out there listening uh, what I want you to do right now is feel underneath your armpit I want you to feel fill your ribs there just feel no matter you know how giant you are you can still probably fill your ribs so um, I know now that PJs for sure based on that research that Kevin was talking about they're teaching the the preferred site for needle decompression is going to be that fourth or fifth intercostal space at the anterior axillary line, and it's not super specific. Uh, Dr. Pruitt had a slide about this that showed a, what did she call it the triangle of safety, I think. So right, yeah, and the, you know also there's a lot of vessels too when you start going when you're midclavicular, you have the heart. Uh, you have a lot of arteries, and so there's actually a lot of things that we can do damage to if we go too low on that spot. Uh, the axillary spot would probably be the, pro the spot that we should, we should be encouraging. Less mass, uh, less meat to go to, more direct line of sight to the lung, and a lot less arteries or vessels to hit. Yeah, and it's, it's going to be, I think it's going to be a little bit easier, you know, versus the other one, you count, you know, the first rib is going to be right below the clavicle, and then you got to kind of again, try to count down the ribs through all that tissue versus um, the anterior axillary line. You can feel those ribs a lot easier and also you just have a landmark so you can go right about nipple level or for women it's going to be the mammary fold and that'll put you right about the fourth ICS. Um, it makes it easier or one other trick we learned is if you put like your hand in their armpit you just go down below that hand that'll get you right in right that, below that pinky yeah kind of puts you in the spot yeah that triangle of safety again so um yeah that's what we're going to try to get out there is is that is the, and there's study behind this it's not just our opinion there's there's research behind this that is saying that's going to be a preferred spot okay kevin so say we just did a needle decompression at the appropriate time but the BP didn't come up after that. Is there anything else we're going to be able to do for that patient? You know, rapid transport. Uh, it looks like that's probably going to be more of a hemorrhagic shock. That person's probably bleeding out internally. 
So, it, you know, it, the tension pneumo is what we're trying to fix to hopefully make everything better. But if it doesn't fix it, then it's probably more damage internally than what we can do. So that person's still going to need an ER and then more likely the OR. Okay. So what else can we do in route, um, you know, with fluids or you know, things we're gonna like have, that? We're going to have two large bore IVs in place and, you know, it's going to be fluid resuscitation to maintain at least a systolic of 100 but we don't want to get their we're not trying to get their pressure back to normal because we know what the problem is they're bleeding internally we don't need a 120 over 80 uh, we're just trying to keep that pressures up to where we still have pulses and keeping that person alive yeah if you get that pressure too high any kind of clots that have been starting to form you could you, you know resuscitate them to their pressure is too high and now it's going to bust those clots open also remember that hypothermia is going to be a big killer in these patients so keep them covered after you know trauma naked but then you got to remember to cover them back up to trying to prevent that uh hypothermic uh, state for these yeah. guys all right and then yeah the the ultimate treatment for this person is going to be a surgeon all right, I think we covered penetrating trauma pretty good. So we're going to move on to blunt trauma. So some of these injuries, the mechanism could be MBAs, a fall, a bat, you know, punched. All these are going to be blunt force trauma. So what do you think? What's the biggest thing we need to know about blunt force trauma as far as like the extent of the damage? Like speed kills. And that's going to be those acceleration, deceleration injuries where, you know, that, that person comes to a blunt stop or uh, something hits them at a really fast pace. And you, the injuries internally are going to be all over the place. Um, torn aorta, there's a tendon that, that develops um, just slightly after you're born. And uh, it's the ligament that holds your aorta in place and it, it keeps it there. It's rigid. So when the body moves or stops relatively quickly it will tend to shear or tear that aorta those individuals are, are going to be extremely hard to, to save because there's a lot of blood that's getting pumped in that aorta and they're going to bleed to death probably within in a minute or two so uh, that's going to lead us down to that you know trauma arrest kind of patient but as far as a lot of the other injuries that we can help those patients are going to be the ones that are still fairly stable um, there's going to be some outward signs you know mvas you might have to see the seat belt mark steering wheel marks uh, these are you know going to give you kind of indicators that this person definitely suffered some injury just from the outward look so you can assume that internally there, there might be something going on as well all right and some of the internal things we already talked about them you can still have a pneumo from blunt force trauma right that's correct yeah it can it can cause that lung to to get uh, collapse uh fluid can build up around it you know, we start leading down the, the hemothorax, um, the cardiac tamponades, all the other injuries that are gonna be as a result of more than likely a bleed. Okay, so let's talk about the difference between, what's the difference gonna be between uh, like a tension pneumo and cardiac tamponade? They're still, you know, it's kind of, both of them are like putting pressure on the heart just in like a different way kind of. So can you explain the difference the, between those two? Sure, the key is gonna be the listening to lung sound so that we have to oscillate. If you have no lung sound, we're gonna be index of suspicion that it's gonna be that tension pneumo. Uh, if we hear muffled heart tones, then that's when we're starting to think that it might be that uh, cardiac tamponade, that fluid or blood building up around the heart and just reducing the uh, preload. Okay. Everybody out there, if uh, you gotta take a paramedic test anytime soon, just remember Beck's triad. So Beck's triad, you're gonna have muffled heart tones, JVD and hypotension. And uh, 
I don't know. I just always that's, remember that. I don't know why. It's just a random name of a of a triad. There's lots of them. That's a very good, that's very good stuff to yeah memorize. We're going to be using Beck's triad every time now. <laughs> there we go. So uh, yeah, muffled heart tones. Pay attention to it. Right, but yeah, really. But the lung sounds. That's yeah, the, the absent, absent or present lung sounds. Right. Okay. And some of the inju other injuries we can get, we can get some fractured ribs, uh, flail chest, pulmonary contusions. Uh, you already talked about the deceleration injury. We don't want to forget uh, commotio cordis. Oh, there we go. Another good one. Or disruption of the heart uh, from a blunt force trauma. Uh, it happens a lot of times like Little League baseball to the chest. Ball hits center chest at the exact time the heart's beating, causing a person to go from a, say, normal rhythm to V-fib. Okay. So, and not very common, but it does With happen. that, uh, like a cardiac contusion, so just, you know, somebody's not wearing their seatbelt, they come forward, they hit the steering wheel, you can have all these injuries that we've talked about. Again, this is all blunt force, but with a cardiac contusion, um, just be suspicious of an arrhythmia. So getting that patient on the monitor or with the uh, commotio cordis. So that's another one. I just one. wanted to say it too, right? I'll put it in my, I'll put it in my memory bank and I'll pull that out anytime. But these patients are sick and they really need to get to the ER quickly. So repeat vitals, um, just constant evaluation of our patients and then uh, you know rapid transport. Okay, <clears throat> the thing to remember, again, we talked about the five places you can bleed to death. If they're bleeding out into their chest, that is not something we're gonna fix in the field. So getting them to that surgeon as quick as possible. Um, I think a lot of people learn pretty good from stories, so. We have a we well. There's always lots of stories. We have story can, time yeah, a little bit. We, we, we got any good examples of a like a blunt trauma or a uh, penetrating trauma to the chest? You know, I had a, a one blunt trauma. This was years ago. It was an elderly lady in the rear seat of a vehicle and a very pretty minor MVA, 35 maybe miles per hour. Um, we get there on scene. She doesn't look great. She's talking. She's ano times four. She's out of the vehicle. Uh, she's just kind of complaining about some diffuse abdominal pain. And you know, you get that kind of that sneaking suspicion like this person looks a little bit more critical. It was one of those, I don't remember what I was on, Rescue 3 or whatever it was, but it was just off the freeway, it was right by the mall. And so we were getting ready to load her and go. AES shows up, kind of give the quick debrief, hey, this lady doesn't look good, pretty low MVA, but her vital, she was a little hypotensive, not bad, but there was just something, you get that feeling like, well, this person just doesn't seem 100% right. So outwardly, really not a lot of injuries. I, barely, I don't even remember there being a seatbelt mark. So we, uh, we get her loaded up, we transport her to ED, uh, get an IV started, pressure comes up, vitals are really good. She's in the ER and she's a really stable patient for the most part from what we're looking at. Uh, I, get, I get a call about 20 minutes later that she crashed and did not make it. So she had a bleed, she had a lacerated liver and uh, it bled out on her way to the OR. And so, you know, you look at this patient though, on, on scene, you're kind of like, well, you know, there's not a lot of the mechanisms there, but was it enough? You know, you start looking at the age group, that geriatric patient. And so, would there have been anything we could have done differently? I don't think so, because we, we got transport initiated immediately. I know the ER was a little bit kind of like, well, this person's pretty stable, and then they weren't. Yeah, so that maybe not, she just decompensated very quickly. So we just, they couldn't catch it. It probably wouldn't have made a difference. But, you know, don't let, don't let that fool you. Take them all very seriously is the, kind of the moral of the story. Yeah, that, me that mechanism should just get your heart rate going a little bit. You should not be uh, wasting time on scene when you got a serious mechanism. Uh, you bring up that 
what did you think it was, a lacerated liver? It was, I believe, a lacerated liver. There might have been uh, an artery and some artery that internally that was, yeah. was, was affected as well. I'm going to have to look that one up. Uh, we're having an abdominal trauma coming right. up, and there, there's a ligament in there, too. I, that one I it, don't know. It's not the ligamentum arteriosum, oh. but uh, I'm going to have to – I'll figure that one out for the next podcast because I'm not familiar with that. But um, How about uh, any kind of, like, shooting, stabbings? I'm sure you've seen you a know, lot of that, but any things stand out? If you're in Albuquerque and you've done medicine for a year or two, you'll have seen uh, quite a few, you know, the penetrating traumas. Um, I found that a lot of those, the actually fairly stable is it's surprising how many people do get shot and, you know, you're kind of like, wow, this person's actually doing fairly well, especially those ones where you get there, they're ANO times four still, they're talking to you, you know, they're in bad shape. It's, it's, that's when you just start doing the whole, you go down to the trauma, the algorithm where, you know, let's just start at the top and work our way down trauma naked. You know, looking for uh, entrance wounds, looking for exit wounds, plugging what we can plug, patching what we can patch. Do we need to do a needle decompression? Are they are they are they starting to deteriorate? Do we have to go down that? And this person, oh, you know, clearly we just re reassess, 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 get those vital signs, and then treat the obvious wounds. And then the external injuries to the you know the extremities. Those are that's just going to be that high tourniquet, high and tight, and you know don't let it be a distracting. Let's focus on those vitals and fixing what we can fix and route. Awesome. Well, we're going to wrap it up, but do you have any advice for people, you know, this, this one, again, this is medical intensive, but even for the basics out there that want to become better at medicine, you know, what's, what's your thoughts on, on, uh, just improving? You know, I think in general with trauma, just if you see it, fix it, you know, there's a lot we can do. And so it doesn't matter what your licensure level is to, to put pressure on a wound, to you know, cover up with a gloved hand, a sucking chest wound. You know, we're we're prepping this person to get them to the OR. That's really definitive care is the only thing that's, that we can that we can do to help this person. Uh, we uh, and really just is that uh, first on scene provider, um, good BLS. You know, we can uh, we can do a lot real quickly and just working towards packaging. Yeah, working towards packaging, working towards transport, and. Um, that's about it. All right. Everybody, thanks for listening again. We covered uh, chest trauma today. And uh, once again, I was joined by Captain Kevin Ferrando. So thanks for coming on, Kevin. Appreciate it. Absolutely, Andrew. Thank you very much. All right. Everybody out there, thanks for listening. And talk to you on the next episode.